Welcome to Sport Management Review Insights. I'm your host, Vito Subral, and I'll get a sense of Sport Management Review's published research by speaking with the researchers themselves. When someone mentions fraud in sport, what may come to mind is the infamous stories of players cheating or the corruption scandals that engulf FIFA. What may not come to mind so easily is fraud at community sport level, yet it's a major problem. And so the impact of fraud on community sport is the topic for this episode. To discuss this, we have an amazing researcher who's published widely in areas like sport corruption, sport governance, corporate social responsibility, and even the effects of academic corruption on collegiate sport. She's Associate Professor at University of Minnesota. It's Lisa Keel, and she has an amazing hybrid accent. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, and thank you for inviting me to be on this podcast. It's a pleasure. It's it's my pleasure and our pleasure. And also, that this I just want the, the listeners to know, you've got a hybrid American-Australian accent before they start going, where is that Boston? No, it's not Boston. <laughs> it's, it's the real South in yes. New South Wales, Australia. And uh, I currently live in uh, the Twin Cities uh, in Minnesota, USA. There you go. So if you picked that beforehand, well done. Lisa and co-authors Pamela Wicker, Graham Koskelly, and Katie Meisner recently published Tip of the Iceberg, an International Investigation of Fraud in Community Sport. Now, Lisa, this reminded me of something I overheard my parents talking about when I was a kid, which was some time ago now. They were involved in a community sport club, and they were told the president had been chased out of the club or chased out of the clubhouse for stealing club funds. And so I just imagine the Simpson scenario where, you know, an angry mob is chasing down the president down the street. But how does this research on community sport fraud help us understand what happened then and, and what's been happening in, in other areas and places? Um, thanks. That's a, that's a good question. And I agree with you. Most people do think of, um, you know, the, the big corruption cases in FIFA and the International uh, Weightlifting Federation and embezzlement in, in those cases or bribery. But not many people think about your local club where a president or a treasurer has been siphoning off money or using their accounts to pay for their own um, expenses. And, you know, it happens in secrecy. It's not like people are waving a flag and saying, hey, you know, we're stealing money. It's not talked about. And so it, it flies under the radar and the impact is immense. And so I think it was important for us to get a sense of what was going on in, in this landscape internationally in community sport organizations. We also wanted to, to kind of get an understanding there's a persistence of fraud in community sport organizations. It's not like this has leveled off. And just last week, there was something in our local paper of a hockey club, the treasurer had siphoned off a quarter of a million dollars. So, you know, we see probably in the paper, I don't know, every three or four months, there's cases that come up across the globe, but we're not investigating and looking at, well, why is this a persistent feature in the sport industry, specifically in community sport? And we know that when a community sport organization has embezzlement or some sort of fraud, the impact is immense. And so we, again, we don't talk about that. And so we need to get a better understanding of who's doing it, how is it happening so that we can work with sport organizations to see if we can enhance their um, internal controls. 
Was it one day that you and, and maybe the co-authors were just reading the paper and going, oh, another community sport fraud story. Hang on. We need to investigate this. Well, actually, this came together, two Australians and a Canadian. So it was Graham Cuskelly and Katie Meisner and myself. We were at NASM. We were sitting in a hotel room having a happy hour drink about the connection. You know, I, you know, I study corruption. They do community sport. And we were just talking about the corruption that occurs in community sport, but, you know, and looking at the connections. And so it just developed out of those conversations of looking at a gap in the literature of, and trying, you know, in two areas of expertise. I mean, I don't necessarily have any expertise in community sport organizations. I grew up in community sport organizations, but my expertise was in corruption. So it was just combining our areas of expertise. To research this, you you used you and the team used a, a fraud diamond theory, which yep. I think sounds like a, a great plot for a heist film. But can you explain what that is and why it was useful for this study? So a fraud diamond theory explains how fraud occurs through four indicators. So if there's opportunity, if there's not sufficient internal mechanisms, and there's pressure, which is usually motivations, like somebody has a motivation to fraud to engage in fraud rationalization, people justify it. And then capability, you've got to have the skill and the knowledge how to do it. So you've got to have those four kind of indicators for it to occur. So we took that framework as a basis to kind of determine whether or not this would work in this landscape. And then we used that framework for our analysis. So that helped us kind of develop our themes as an outcome of the study we were able to extend on that framework and make it more contextualized for a CSO uh, uh, context and how fraud occurs with some nuances than you would see in a for-profit or a non-profit organization. I love that you turned it into an acronym as well, CSO, which I assume is Community Sport Organization. Oh, sorry. No, that's okay. That's great. I love it. It really shows the the brilliant in-depth knowledge you have on this topic, which which is yeah, great. Yeah, I know nothing about community sport. Uh, so anyway, that's why we we use that model, if you want to say, as as a starting point, because we really there's nothing you could say in the sport literature that you could draw on. I mean, you could do it from an individual organizational or um, systems, but it seemed more that's more, I guess, corruption in general, but we're looking more at how does fraud occur? And that diamond is more specific to explaining how fraud occurs in organizations. And you also use a a qualitative content analysis of media reports, which is kind of speaking my language because I used to be that person creating the reports, but what types of reports were you looking at? And why do you think content analysis was a good approach to take here? I think most people think when you study um, media reports, it's naturally a content analysis. Well, Miles et al., their qualitative analysis process is a little different than your traditional content analysis. And what they do, the process guides you to look for themes versus counting. So we weren't looking for a numerical count. We were looking for themes around the four indicators of how it occurred. So what were the motivators? What were the pressures? What were the opportunities? How did they kind of do it? How did they justify it? And then what was the capability? Like what kind of skill set did they have and knowledge? So we were looking to extend on those themes. So we use, I guess, the analysis in that way. And it wasn't counting how many. And so to answer your first question, we're analyzing to determine how to address our central research question was who's doing it? How are they doing it? And what were the pressures, et cetera, rationalizations? 
in the end, we presented a, a, a visual model. So it's the, the diamond, but we have made it more specific to CS, community sport organizations, CSOs. And so looking specifically under, say, pressures, opportunities, rationalizations, and capability, what is, you, you know, what is specific around fraud in those four indicator areas? You did find, and I hate to use a number because you weren't looking for numbers, but you did find 71 cases of fraud across the four countries and that occurred in 17 different sports. So it's it's a range of sports. Yep. And what did you learn from studying these, bearing in mind the framework that uh, you're looking at this from? We learned a lot, actually. Like I said before, it occurs globally. It's not... It's not just in one country. It's, it's everywhere. It's in every sport. It's not just one community sport. So there's equal opportunity, it seems like there. Fraud occurs too much in, in community volunteer type sport organizations because people trust each other. They don't think that Joanne's mother, is, who's really nice, is going to embezzle $250,000. So people put too much trust into their community members, right? Their parent volunteers. Capability, you know, when you're looking for volunteers in a community sport organization, you think, oh, so-and-so's mom is an accountant or their dad works in whatever that's related to finances. They would be great. Well, if there's no internal mechanisms, they know how to navigate the system and can potentially embezzle money. We also learned that, funny enough, that even if sport organizations had internal financial controls, they didn't follow them. And even a couple of cases, they had embezzlement and then they implemented internal controls. And then five years later, they had embezzlement again. They didn't even learn. And so you have to be careful about that because community members will rally around a sport organization if something happens, right? Oh my gosh, that's awful. You know, the treasurer has embezzled all this money. Kids can't play. There is no uniforms. They can't do travel. We'll fundraise and we'll help. But when it happens a second time, people are going to, they're not going to be as supportive. And it really hurts the reputation of the organization. So we, we have to think about why aren't community sport organizations not following their internal controls? And I guess the other thing, men and women, it's not just men or women. It is men and women. So it's not a, it's not a gender thing. That's for sure even though it's probably more men volunteering in, in those positions, we didn't see really major trends in that way. Um, when you spoke about trust there in community sport, I automatically go to bowling alone um, and social capital. Oh, yep. Is that involved here? And it, it almost seems like, well, that, that's a negative here because if you have trust within the sport, you are at risk of someone betraying that trust. Well, so that's why internal mechanisms are so important So we trust each other, but if you have internal mechanisms in place, then there's always checks and balances. So you don't have to put so much trust in somebody. Even what was interesting to me, board members would ask the treasurer to present their report and they would do a, they would present a verbal report or they would say, oh, I'll get it to you next month. And they would just keep putting them off and, and nobody questioned it. Well, that's, the board is either being lax or putting too much trust that, oh, yes, the treasurer will follow through on their word. And so board members have to be vigilant and demand to see the numbers, to see reports. The other thing that was interesting, too, is 
the banks obviously know. So the banks role in this. And we didn't write about this in the paper, but I've been talking to different people around the world who study corruption and the bank's role in kind of embezzlement. And in this particular case, you kind of wonder in small towns, or even I guess in larger cities, people know when a community small organization is banking in a certain bank. And they know if somebody's opening a visa account or a credit card, but putting it in their name. Well, that's a bit dodgy, right? You shouldn't be doing that. Well, why doesn't the bank call the president and say, do you know, blah, 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 blah. So where's the bank's role in kind of seeing the red flags and, and just communicating to, to the sport organization? So, you know, there's kind of other factors that we didn't talk about in the paper, but it, there's a multitude of people who trust too much or maybe they're just, I don't know, not motivated to say anything. I'm not quite, you know, you kind of just wonder. You've obviously researched high-level corruption, elite sport level corruption. How does that differ from, from what's happened here in community sport? Well, in terms of fraud and embezzlement, I don't think it's, it's different. It's probably the amount of money. And you would say there's a lot more bribing going on at that level to cover up. Whereas here, I would say it's one or two people engaging in a lower level. It's not millions, but there was a couple of cases where it was up to three quarters of a million dollars over five years. And the impact is, is just as big, right? Because it's community sport. Yeah, because at that international level, it seems like they're still competing. But, you know, the International Weightlifting Federation, they were worried that they were going to go solvent because they were so much in debt. They came out of it, but I don't see, you know, necessarily that case in a community sport organization, but I know people would rally around and try and fundraise, right? This research, what does it all mean? How have we advanced our knowledge of community sport fraud and the theory? Well, in terms of the theory, we were able to expand on our understanding of opportunity and capability. And specifically around opportunity, within community sport organizations, you see position vacancies, right? It's really hard to find people to be president or treasurer. And those position vacancies contributed to poor bookkeeping practices, and that created opportunities for people to exploit the system when there's minimal oversight and not necessarily having internal controls to follow. So high turnover, we know, can actually create opportunities. And for people to, um, who have the capability and the justification to, to do it. And motivation, there must have been half of the cases people were, had gambling problems or some sort of drug addiction. Or their businesses, small businesses were in trouble. And so they needed to find some sort of source of cash to support their businesses. So if you have that situation and you have this constant turnover and, and nobody in certain positions, it creates a huge opportunity. The other thing, opportunity in the fraud diamond, opportunity is really seen as an individual. How do individuals engage in fraud? But in community sport, it can be groups. It could be the president and the treasurer who are engaging this. It's not always just one person. And so I think it's a false assumption that's just individuals. It could be co-offenders, which is not a big thing. It makes sense. But I think we need to be thinking more about how does collective fraud occur and not just individual fraud when we're looking at this? And I mentioned this before, it's amazing that community sport organizations do not follow their own internal controls. It just, is it laziness or, or because there's so much turnover, they're there and they don't take the time to read or just follow them. But that's when the board, it's their responsibility 
to ask and make sure that those internal controls are followed. So, you know, there's a dual responsibility in that sense. We talked about trust before. That interpersonal trust creating opportunities for fraud um, and something to, to be looking at. And then capability we mentioned before about there's that balance in terms of finding somebody that's capable to fulfill the treasurer position, but also understanding that they know the system. So you have to have internal controls to make sure you have checks and balances on your treasurer and your president. So that's kind of theoretically. And then I guess uh, empirically, I would say it's contributing to the work that we know that's been conducted in the corruption world in sport. There's been a lot in terms of match fixing, which is both bribery and fraud, doping, which is fraud, mostly at elite levels, but not really looking that much at community sport, except for a few examples. So this was more specific fraud within a community sport organization to add to the literature empirically. And then in practice, which I believe is the the last question, it's like you got the questions in advance, Lisa. Amazing. Funny that, huh? <laughs> so, so, what, so what can sport organizations do? How does this research help sport organizations in combating the, this, this fraud that, uh, that's becoming a real problem or has yeah. been a problem? Number one is awareness. So, you know, it's like I've been doing a little a speaking tour. We have written an article for Play by the Rules in Australia and kind of, put the word out like this, this is important. I am talking on Monday to local AU organizations um, with basketball, with their club presidents, and just getting the word out. I think they're aware, but it's, do you have internal controls? What should you be looking at? So there's education to this. So what internal controls, how do you implement, and then support. So if they don't know, can we provide training? For existence, do they have timely and accurate financial reporting systems? Do they have procedures to safeguard assets? Are their practices compliant with local laws and regulations? Do they efficiently utilize their organizational resources? So, for example, do they have a separation of duties? Do they require two signatures to authorize checks? How much cash do they collect? I mean, they shouldn't be collecting cash, period. It should be all online when you're collecting fees. But I know people still take cash for registrations and whatever. Mandatory monthly reporting, physical reporting, seeing reports that people can can look at. And then regular um, auditing procedures just to make sure that they're following guidelines. So it's just those I would say simple practices that sport organizations need to be aware of, but I understand with the turnover, they don't necessarily read the um, internal controls and what those policies and procedures are, or they just can't find anybody. And so those procedures don't get followed. So there's, um, if presidents, boards just need to be weary of those opportunities because the impact is immense. It really seems the key here is to have the guidelines, the internal controls, and make sure you follow them, but keep the trust. If you trust everyone, that's great, but just make sure you follow the guidelines and everything will be okay. We hope. Yes. (laughs) If you have, you know, if you have motivation, opportunity, and uh, justification and capability, it could still happen. I mean, I'm not naive to think that it's never going to happen, but you're really trying to minimize your risks. 
And the other part is, are you promoting integrity in the organization and talking about how important following rules, regulations? So it's not like, you know, that code of conduct that sits on the shelf and nobody speaks about it. It's something that you could continually having conversations and promoting integrity in your organization, not when it suits you. You kind of, I guess, mentioned it with the turnover. Would you think that community sport clubs might say, oh, look, this is all so difficult. Uh, you know, we have a hard enough time just trying to organize our, our daily, daily schedule and things like that. What would your response be to that? I would say, well, yes, I understand. But do you want the outcome of that? And that do you want an opportunity where you could lose quite a lot of money and that impacts kids? So if you are not willing to follow internal controls, then why do you have sport? Why are you delivering a program? It's just as important as putting the sport on the field is having these internal controls. And if you're a board member, you have fiduciary responsibilities. So no excuse, basically. Lisa says no excuse. (laughs) Well, you can't, you know, and I understand, but you can't, you can't put a priority that delivery is more important than your fiduciary responsibilities. Thanks so much, Lisa. That was really insightful. And, and I really hope from your research, there's going to be less stories of community sport club presidents, you know, being chased down the street um, and, and things like that. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate the time. It's been a pleasure. And thanks for listening to Sport Management Review Insights. Please head to the Sport Management Review website to check out all the latest research being published, including Tip of the Iceberg, an international investigation of fraud in community sport. That's it for this episode, but keep a lookout. There'll be more dropping in your favorite podcast player soon. Until then, it's bye for now.